0: Our scripture reading today is Matthew chapter 9. I'm kind of excited to read this because I don't, all of y'all that went to Honduras with us know that at 9.38 every day we have an alarm set to pray because of the last verse in this, in this chapter. So here we go. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, laying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil is in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, "'Rise, pick up your bed, and go home.' And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to to him, "'Follow me.' And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples." And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And instantly, oh, sorry. Jesus turned and seeing her. He said, Take heart, my daughter, your faith has made you well, and instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping, and they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl rose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, it be done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, seeing that no one knows about this. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mike. Turning your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, speaking with a word of prayer, Lord, once again we come to you, We're ready to worship, we come to your word ready to learn, we come here not, not desiring to have our ears itched, but Lord, to hear from your scriptures pray, Lord, that you would help me as I present them, help me to be bold and to be accurate in the way I present your word. Lord, I pray that we as a people would hear this and, and understand where our shortcomings are, Lord, where, and uh, repent of sin. And Lord, if there's someone here today who does not know you, I pray that they would accept you as Savior today. Be with us now during this time, help us to bring you glory, in your name, amen. We've been walking through the book of Proverbs, and we've been seeing that foolishness ultimately is sin. It's not just mere foolishness, it's actually sin. Continuing on this idea, this passage brings us to a stark reality. Too often, many of us take a very light attitude toward our sin. We come to the conclusion that lying isn't really that bad. In fact, many of us even suggest that lying is necessary in our regular lives. We come to the conclusion that sex before marriage is just no big deal. God understands, everyone does it, right? We come to the conclusion that at the end of the day, being at church really isn't a priority, or sharing the gospel really isn't that big of a deal. God understands that I'm busy, uh, or He understands that I'm that I'm just really shy, right? Then, because of our determination to minimize sin, we actually end up skewing our view of who God is, making Him into our image until he ultimately looks nothing like what Scripture describes. And worse yet, many of us are just fine with that. We come to the conclusion that since I take a light attitude towards sin, that God must have the same attitude. Lying, sex outside of a biblical heterosexual marriage, or even distancing ourselves from congregational gatherings and sharing the gospel— really don't matter to God. He knows our hearts, and therefore he he knows that I'm a good person. So those areas don't really matter to him. After all, God loves everyone and everything, right? Is any of this true? Are any of these ideas biblical? Is God as passive about sin as we have become? Our passage today is going to hit us square between the eyes, And show us that our view of God may be off, and therefore our view of sin may be off. Today we'll be looking at areas of our lives that Scripture is clear about, and that God says that He actually hates. Look at our passage in Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, says this, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor... "'Have given your pledge for a stranger. "'If you are snared in the words of your mouth, "'caught in the words of your mouth, "'then do this, my son, and save yourself. "'For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. "'Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. "'Give your eyes no sleep, and your eyelids no slumber. "'Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, "'like a bird from the hand of a fowler. "'Go to the ant, O sluggard. "'Consider her ways and be wise.' Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, And hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. So, as we've looked at this passage, as we've read through this passage, it's really helpful for us to understand some of the structure going on here. Some of the structure. What does this have to do with what's going on? If you think about this, right, Proverbs chapter 5. We're, we're still in the introduction of the book of Proverbs. The first nine or ten chapters are introducing the book of Proverbs to us. And then the Proverbs themselves actually don't start until after the introduction. So what's going on here in this introductory section? What is being, what is happening? What's tying this all together? Last week we looked at Proverbs chapter five. We looked at sexual immorality, and we talked about, we talked about how 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 that can destroy you, how that can and will ultimately destroy you. So what is going on here? Here in chapter six, verses one through nineteen, it's actually sandwiched between yet another section about sexual immorality at the end of chapter six, all the way through chapter 7. So what's this doing here? What is in, what's going on? Why is this here in the middle? Now, functionally, structurally, this passage, these 19 verses, function as a, as a appendix to chapter 5. They're continuing the same kind of thought process, and let me show you what that, what I mean by that. This passage is these 19 verses, they continue this theme of self inflicted impo- impoverishment from interactions with strangers. In chapter 5, it talks about the strange woman. In chapter 6, the first couple of verses, it talks about dealings with a stranger. Wickedness, also in these two passages, is, is, uh, is dealt with by the Lord as the final act of judgment, as the final agent, agent of judgment. In chapter 5, we saw how how sexual sin will lead to uh, judgment by the Lord. And here we see the same thing. By the end of verse 19, we've seen that God stands as judge over this sin. One scholar suggested that it's possible that these 19 verses were inserted in here to show that the type of naivety and wickedness that this type of, wicked, well, of naivety and wickedness is just as dangerous as dealings with a strange woman. <clears throat> Raymond Ortland Jr. continues to describe this, this structure here. He shows that there's, basically then there's, there's three different types of people that are described in this passage. He uses a negative example, but each of these negative examples are given to show a positive aspect of wisdom, a positive teaching about wisdom. Essentially, these three passages, these three sections, go from bad to worse. In, uh, in, in the verses 1 through 5, he speaks to the Son, right? He says, my Son, do this. He speaks to the Son directly about about being a surety for, uh, for someone else. In, in uh, verses 6 through 11, he speaks to the sluggard, to the lazy person about their laziness. And in verses 12 through 19, rather than speaking directly to them, he speaks about this wicked or disruptive person in verses 12 through 19 without even addressing him. God even feels so strongly about these wicked people, that these destroyers of the community, that in verses 12 through 19, he doubles up against them and, 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 and attacks them a second time. In the in the end of the of the section there. In this first section, though, we're we're warned against we're we're this is a warning. But again, this warning, this negative example, is giving us a positive teaching about wisdom. This first one we see here is we are asked, we are told to be responsible, to be responsible. Look again at verses 1 through through 5 here. It says, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the mouth of your words, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this. My son, and save yourselves, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. We are called here to be responsible, especially in this case with our finances and with our own security. He says here at the beginning of the passage, he says to—he warns against putting up security— for, uh, for your neighbor. So, what does this mean? What does it mean to put up security? This is essentially like the same idea as co signing a loan, it's putting yourself up as collateral, underwriting someone's speculative risk, getting into a partnership when your partner's default can bring you down. God's not being mean in warning against this. Rather, Scripture is clear that we should be generous. But that also is clear that we should not gamble. We should be generous with our money, but we should give freely. Not expecting it as a loan, not taking it in that kind of a way. And we are also told in Scripture not to gamble with our money, not to take risks that we ought not to take. If we are going to give someone, give to someone, we should do so freely, not in a way that enslaves us to a debt. Notice that verse 2 says, that if you put up security for someone, that you are in danger of— that you, Or excuse me, uh, verse 2 does not say that if you put up security for someone, that you're in danger of being enslaved or ensnared. Rather, it says that you are ensnared. If you put up security for someone, if you've done that, if you've taken on someone else's debt in that kind of a way— Scripture does not say, you might be in a dangerous situation. It says, no, you are ensnared. You are enslaved by this. Verse 1 clarifies then who this is talking about. Who is it who is this that is in mind? Um, it gives two titles just in verse 1 alone and talks about a neighbor and a stranger. Verse 1, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger. Are these talking about two different people? I would argue no, that, the, that, the, that Solomon has in mind the same exact person. This father, speaking to his son, has in mind the same exact person. It's more likely here that, that neighbor describes the son's perspective, right? This is a neighbor. They're a friend. They'll, they won't let me down. They're going to be fine, right? Whereas the father, looking on this, perceives them to be a stranger because of the danger that they put their son in. Right, Not because the father doesn't know who they are, but he's saying what you're doing is very dangerous. In that sense, just like the strange woman, this person is putting you in danger. And in that sense, they are a stranger. They're a stranger because they cause danger and destruction, not because the son does not know who they are. Verse three then gives the prescription for getting out of this tra- out of this trap. Verse three says, "Then do this, my son, and save yourself." He says, "Save yourself." The word here, if you go continue on, it says, "Save yourself," for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. This word here that's translated hasten. This, this Hebrew word also means to humble yourself. In other words, go to him on your hands and knees, willing to let him call you all sorts of nasty names, letting him trample all over you, admitting how stupid you have been, and get out of the deal. Right? You don't expect, if, someone, if you co-sign a loan with somebody, you don't expect that person to be just okay if you want to bail on them, Right? They're going to say, well, who do you think you are? Right? They're going to be mad at you. Solomon says, God says, this proverb says, let him do it. Let him call you all sorts of nasty names. Get out. says, go, hasten or humble yourself and plead urgently with your neighbor. To plead urgently with the person means to pester or badger them. Right? Come on, let me out, 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 let me out. Right? Ray Ortland Jr. again says uh, it's, it means leaving a string of messages on their voicemail, right? Keep calling them. Leave a bunch of messages. Just hoping things will work out, Proverbs says, is foolish. To get yourself in this situation and say, well, I really don't want to get out of it. I just hope it all works out in the end. Proverbs says that is foolish to do so. I heard a story about a man once who made this similar kind of mistake. He was at home one day when a friend of his came by to ask him to co-sign a loan for $250,000. The bank wanted more security. This man thought, he's a good guy, I care about him, I don't want to disappoint him, and he signed it. He knew Proverbs 6, he knew this passage, but at that moment he forgot it. Then that friend went belly up and the bank came after that man. He lost $100,000 in cash and the bank did not let up on him until he begged them not to throw his wife out of their house. He had jeopardized his wife's future. He repented before God and thankfully over the next 10 years or so God graciously restored the lost money to him but that was just an act of pure grace. It doesn't mean that what he did was okay. It means that what God did was just purely gracious to him. Proverbs tells us, if you were in this kind of an arrangement where you were holding credit for someone else, you need to get yourself free. Don't worry about whether or not they will call you names. You must take back your own responsibility for your life. If someone else has done this for you, say, I've got a friend, they co-signed a loan for me. The best thing you can do for that person is to set them free. Don't let them make the same mistake, right? Don't let them be the fool in in this case. Go to them and say, look, I shouldn't have done that. I need to take responsibility for my own debts. And I want to get you out of this if we can, right? Secondly, we see here, we are asked, we are called by this by the by the book of proverbs by the lord by this father to be productive we're called to be productive it says go to the ant o sluggard consider her ways and be wise without having any chief officer or ruler she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest how long will you lie there o sluggard when will you arise from your sleep a little sleep a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So we ask this question, what is a sluggard? We don't use that term very often anymore. What is a sluggard? What's he talking about? One description is, much like cold syrup slowly oozes out of a bottle, the sluggard is slow and hesitant when he should be decisive, active, and forthright. His life's motto is, don't rush me. He's lazy, constantly making the soft choice, losing one opportunity after another, after another, after another, day by day, moment by moment, until he lies there helpless in his wasted life. Now let's all admit it. There's a sluggard deep inside each of us. Isn't there? The book of Proverbs talks a lot about the sluggard. First we learn that the sluggard will not make up his mind verse 9 right here in our passage the proverb asks how long will you lie there when are you going to get up from your sleep the question the answer to this question from the sluggard is that man that, that's too definite i can't i can't i can't give you a time right i can't do that he has no answer Second, the Proverbs teaches that the sluggard will not finish things. When he does find motivation to get going, he finds that it is too much for him and he gives up. Proverbs 26, verse 15 tells us, The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The image I get in my head, imagine, imagine your own children or your own grandchildren or even the children that were right here for children's sermon. There's a bowl of candy in front of them, Right? And you say, go ahead and grab all that you want. And they stick their hand in the jar. They stick their hand in the bag. They stick their hand in the bowl. And they leave it there. Because they're too lazy to bring the hand back to their mouth. Right? They say, man, these M&Ms are going to be great. I can't wait. Oh, it's too much work. Right? This is the image that Proverbs is bringing to us. It's a crazy idea, right? But this is the life of a sluggard. He does not stick with a task all the way through to a strong finish. Ultimately, he is a shallow person. Even when given the opportunities, he squanders them. Third, the sluggard will not face things as they are. Rather than embrace the challenge of life, he dreams up excuses. Proverbs twenty-two thirteen. 13, I love this, tells us, The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the streets. Really? I highly doubt that there's a lion out there on Main Street. Right? That would be like somebody telling me, oh, you got to get up. I'm like, there might be a lion out there. Right? You're thinking, what are you talking about? (laughs) What in the world? Right? What's really out there is not a lion. What's really out there is a job life. It's a mission to fulfill for Christ. So what does the slugger need to do? Proverbs tells us here in this passage, go to the ant and take notes. What a humiliating call, right? He doesn't say, study the most important people and the best theologians and read the best books. No, he says, go to the ant. But you you see, especially for us guys, we need this. Ray Orland Jr. again explains, we are so accustomed to being wait and see, hang back and critical and guarded that we don't even feel the shame of it anymore. A church rather that's filled with men that are energized, men that are working, men that are engaged, men who have intensity, men of conviction and action. That is exactly what this World needs to see in our churches today, but to display Christ that strongly, we need to humble ourselves and admit our need and accept God's simple remedy. So it's so humbling that we, whom God created to rule over all of creation, need to learn how to live from an ant. So then we ask the question: What can we learn from an ant? What can we learn? The text gives us three lessons that we can learn from ants about our sluggard ways. First, we see the ant has inner motivation. This, pro- this verse says, says, without any chief, officer, or ruler. Now, we need to understand this proverb was written before modern science and before those kind of studies about the authority structure in ant colonies. But so Solomon here is using the best knowledge that he has in his time. Further, we see in this, this, that this passage actually still appears true. You ever watched ants? You don't ever see, there's not like an ant, a bigger ant behind, like with a whip going, keep going, keep going. Right, you don't see that. So it seems to, that seems to be the case that on their very own, they go and do what they know needs to be done. Verse 7 and 8 says that the ant has no chief or ruler, yet she still gets the job done. The ant has within her all the motivation she needs to push forward. Second, we see that the ant is a hard worker. Look again at verse 8. It says, She prepares her bread in summer. Even in the hot sun, she continues to work hard, grabbing one grain at a time. Third, we see the ant is an expert at future preparation. Once again, in verse 8, it explains that she gathers her fruit, gathers her food in the harvest. The ant works today to prepare for tomorrow. She's not hoping that life will go her way. She's getting out ahead of the next season of life. Do you want to be a more godly man or a more godly woman by this time next year? If so, how are you going to do that? Do you want to be prepared for the next trial that God brings your way? Do you want to be prepared for for that trial that God will inevitably bring to you? How are you going to do that? How are you going to make that happen? What's your plan? The gospel shows us that this kind of thing is something that brings glory to God. This gospel shows us such glory in God and in ourselves because of Christ that gospel-centered people become accomplishment-hungry. Christian homes and church families ought to be like an anthill, everybody actively achieving together. Wise people love goals and strategies to leverage their present into a better future. Sluggards are waiting for something to turn up. The ultimate truth is that it won't. Sluggards also are procrastinators. Sluggards are procrastinators. Notice verses 9 through 11. It says, it says, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. All right? Let me hit that snooze one more time. Let me hit that snooze one more time. Oh, I just need a little bit more sleep, guys. I'm just going to... Does anything get accomplished? How long is a little? A little turns out usually to be a little bit more than a little, doesn't it? It turns out to be a lot. The sluggard will put off things endlessly until it's too late. Procrastination can cause you to lose your job. Procrastination can cause you to lose your ability to provide for your family. Ultimately, procrastination and really laziness will lead to poverty. So, we must seek to be productive if we want to be wise. And third, we must seek to be a unifier. Be a unifier. We read verses 12 through 16 here. It says, A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. We must be people who seek unity. This final person that we meet is, a, is called the worthless person. He's a wicked man. The, this person seeks to destroy everyone around him. The word here used for worthless is the Hebrew word belial. You may have heard that word before. It means without benefit or profit or use. The New Testament uses this same term to describe as, as a name for the devil himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, verse 15, it says, What accord has Christ with Belial? Can they go together? No. For this area, we will talk specifically about a church context. In many churches today, we have people who are not just doubters and skeptics. In fact, doubters and skeptics are often good to have in a church, right? We can teach them. They can learn. They can t- ask us questions. They can help sharpen us. But many churches also have members and leaders who are just not on Christ's side. They're not just skeptics and doubters. They are actually functioning as enemies of Christ. Everyone sins stupidly, but some church people sin aggressively. These are the kinds of people that our passage condemns. We see in our passage that these people sin in, in little ways. But that those those little things make a huge impact. Notice the actions in verse 13 and 14. It says, He winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. It says, With perverted heart, he devises evil, continually sowing discord. Winking, signaling, and pointing all spread disunity and destruction. Looking across the room to roll your eyes to your friend, to show your dissatisfaction with the sermon using Sunday lunch to complain about the pastor or about the music. The scripture calls us to be unified. We are called to build each other up, not to tear down. Would you want to go to a church where everyone was just looking for what was wrong? Just seeking for ways to talk negatively about each other? Of course not. God is clear about what he will do with the person who acts like this in verse 15. Essentially God is saying that he will punish that befa- behavior. Says, therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly, in a moment he will be broken beyond healing. What God is telling us <clears throat> What God is telling us is that he will punish that behavior because his son died to bring us together in unity. He does not take this lightly. Then we notice how strongly God feels about those who cause disunity. In verses 16 through 19, it says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. And then He gives a list. I want you to think about this list for a second. Right? First of all, let's think of that phrasing, right? Six things the Lord hates, yet seven. Why didn't He just start with seven? Right? In fact, what we, we have here is a poetic device that's used to highlight one of these aspects. In fact, Scripture does this in several different places. I, th- I think of a time in Job. I think there's another pro- place later in the Proverbs where some similar structure is, happens. This poetic structure is called—I'm going to give you the technical term just because for fun, and you guys are intelligent people, right? This is called X, X plus one type of poetic structure, right? It's X, X plus one, where a number is mentioned— And then another number with one added to it is then mentioned, right? Typically then, the plus one is the emphatic piece of the poetry. It's the highlight, right? The focus of the statement. All of these things, arrogance, lies, murder, which Jesus defines as hating one another, devising wicked plans, running to evil, spreading lies and gossip, are all ultimately symptoms of a person who spreads discord, who breaks unity among the brothers. There's another interesting aspect of this particular paragraph. Notice how well it parallels with the passage right above it. The man that's described in in, in, in in the passage right before it has a list of things that he does to sow discord. Right? He winks with his eyes. God condemns haughty eyes. Right? He points with his feet. God condemns running with his feet to evil. This man... Uh, this man points with his finger and God says this man's hands shed innocent blood. This list of what this worthless man is like, God describes each of those things as, as of things that he hates. This worthless person is a person that ultimately God hates what he does. <clears throat> Verse 16 tells us that God hates these things. Things, that they are an abomination to him. You may ask yourself, what is an abomination? Ultimately, it, it, what this means is that this, these things turn his stomach. They make him sick. I'm glad that my wife is here today. Uh, many of you know she's pregnant and she's suffering greatly with morning sickness. She can uh, relate to this very well. She has been very sick with this morning sickness. The slightest smells can turn her stomach and sometimes actually make her vomit. God tells us in this passage that these actions, this type of disunity makes him vomit. He says to a lukewarm church in the book of Revelation, I will spew you out of my mouth. If you are a person who brings disunity, watch out. You have made yourself the object of God's hatred. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, one or more of these groups of people described here actually describes us. We're foolish with our finances. We can be lazy and procrastinators. And some of us can spread disunity with our words and actions. Each of these things we often do not think much about. We sometimes see them as silly mistakes or just, you know, part of our personality. But God sees them as Foolishness. Foolishness, as we've seen in the book of Proverbs, is always sin. And sin, as Scripture tells us, deserves death. Because of our sin, we, not just our sin, but we, the ones who commit that sin, are the objects of God's wrath. Notice that God does not merely say that he hates the sins. He hates the arrogant eyes, the lying tongue, The hands and heart and hearts and feet that sin. The person who bears false witness and the person, the one who sows discord. Psalm chapter 5 verses 4 through 6 clarify this. It says, for you are not a God, speaking to the Lord, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Notice the similarities here. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Not you hate evil. You hate evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. God is not as passive about our sin as we are. He hates sin. Even more, it is the people who sin that God has made the object of his wrath. What does Ephesians 2 tells us? But God. One of the beautiful butts of Scripture. But God. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, our biggest debt is not the debt that we are in with a stranger. Our biggest debt is our sin. Our greatest poverty is not the poverty that comes from laziness. It is spiritual poverty that comes from putting off the decision to follow Christ. Our greatest disunity is not the disunity between us and other people, but the disunity that is between us and God the Father. Yes, God hates sin, and yes, sinners are the very object of the wrath of God Almighty. But God sent his only begotten son to enter our world as a man named Jesus Christ. Jesus lived in perfect wisdom. Not a single foolish action could be found in his life. And, he, and Christ took the cup of God's wrath that should be poured out on sin and sinners. And he drank every last drop, dr- drop of that cup, turned it over and said, it is finished. When he died on the cross for our sins. But he didn't stay dead. No, three days later, He rose victoriously from the dead. Amen. Conquering sin and Satan and foolishness and death. He took on himself the promises of calamity that come in the book of Proverbs. The promises of death that come from the book of Proverbs. So that he could bring us life. Proverbs tells us that the beginning of wisdom is to worship the Lord. To have a relationship with, it, with wisdom, that is, a relationship with Jesus Christ, who the scriptures tell us is our wisdom. You may find yourself to be caught in foolishness, but there is hope. There is life in Christ. Will you trust Him today? And we've seen three different areas of our lives that you may need to repent of. There may be some foolish financial transaction that you've gotten yourself into. into, into. We must repent of that. We must tell the Lord that, we, uh, that, that what we did was wrong that it was sin and that we must get that area of our life back under control. We saw a second area of life, laziness. We could probably fill the altar with every single one of us. Because every one of us are procrastinators and lazy. We all have some aspect of that within us. Yes, we must repent of that laziness. And yes, we must seek to be productive. We also saw this worthless person. Perhaps you're a person who sows discord. Perhaps you're a person who who has made it a goal to stop the work of God because of your own discomfort, because of something you don't like, or whatever the case may be. God calls you to repent of that. Maybe you have something personal and one of those sins that you need to deal with between you and the Lord. Maybe for you, you're, you see this past and you say, I am not a believer. I need Jesus. This is a great opportunity to take to, to, to come to the Lord for salvation. Maybe today you're sitting here and say, I want to be a part of a church that's going to preach the gospel, that's going to preach scripture, that's going to make sure that we understand what scripture says about things. We call that church membership If you're interested in being a member of our church And being a part of this community of faith This would be another great opportunity To come, to come and talk to me And I'd love to share with you how, how we can make that happen How we can make steps toward that to take place As we move into this invitation Let's, let's begin with a word of prayer Lord thank you for dying for my foolishness Lord you took on the curse of proverbs that were rightly mine you took on the curse of sin that was rightly mine you drank the full measure of the cup of God's wrath turned it over and said it is finished I don't deserve that Lord, you call us to pursue wisdom, and that we, we see in Scripture that there is no pursuing wisdom outside of a relationship with you. Lord, if I pray that there is someone here who does not know you as their Savior, that they would make that happen today, Lord, that they would enter into that relationship with you today. Lord, however you're working in people's hearts, whatever way that you are, that you are, the Holy Spirit that you are drawing people, I pray that they would respond to your word in your name.